Scripture reading this morning is in Acts chapter 15. Go ahead and remain seated, and I will read this for us. Acts 15, going to be looking today at verses 7 through 35 of Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, beginning with verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burdens than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would bless uh, the reading of your word to us this morning. Help us to learn and grow uh, from this passage of scripture that we have before us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning is the second of two sermons working through Acts chapter 15. This is the Jerusalem Council. 
uh, where the elders, the apostles, the leadership of the early church uh, gathers to hammer out a controversy that has arisen in the church over whether Gentile converts, the non-Jews, needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Uh, Paul was right at the heart of this debate. Uh, He writes a letter to the Galatian churches laying out in very clear and at times uh, scathing language uh, that this was a false teaching. Gentiles could be saved as Gentiles. They didn't need to become Jews first. Jesus' death covers our sins. Our works do not. And so we saw last time this debate from the perspective of Paul. And it was very clear in his mind. But now we're going to look at how the church uh, handled this issue, how the church leadership uh, settled this debate. Because often when it comes to disputes in churches, I might be really certain of my view on the subject, and you might be really certain of your view, and we might have opposite views. So how are we to settle an issue like this? I think Acts 15 will serve as a good model for us in how to discuss and resolve uh, doctrinal disputes. Uh, The text before us is divided into four sections. Three of them are speaking sections. So you have Peter, and then you have Paul and Barnabas, and then James. They all speak and they give their arguments uh, on this issue. Then the last section is where the resolution is reached, and the apostles and elders write a letter. They send it out to the Gentile converts explaining their answer to this question. So the first section, we'll just jump right into it there in verse 7. Peter stands up to speak, and if you know anything about Peter, it won't surprise you that he's the first one to speak. Uh, But after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And if you've been with us through our study of the book of Acts, you may remember Cornelius uh, is who is being referenced here, where Peter was sent by God uh, to give the gospel to this new person, this new Gentile, not a Jew at all. Uh, He had given the gospel to Cornelius and his whole family had been saved. And the point that Peter stresses here in verse 7 is that God made this choice. This wasn't my idea. In fact, when God gave me the vision and said, accept these unclean animals that I have cleansed, I said no. Uh, God gave him that vision, you remember, three times. And God told him to go to Cornelius' house and preach to him. So God made this happen, Peter's saying. I didn't go of my own volition. This wasn't my choice. Uh, It was God's. Verse 8, Peter continues along these lines. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So again, uh, Peter is emphasizing that God did this. God is the actor here, not Peter. You're not arguing, in other words, against me or against Paul or against Barnabas. Your issue is with God. God chose to save Gentiles. He chose to give them the Holy Spirit as a manifestation of their genuine conversion. This was God bearing witness to their salvation. And so Peter is essentially saying our options then are either to say God got it wrong and they aren't really saved, and so apparently unsaved people can get the Holy Spirit, or we just accept the fact, however difficult it may be for us to swallow, that God has saved these non-Jews just as they are. He has given them the Holy Spirit as Gentiles. And so who are we uh, to add requirements that God has not? Verse 19, he made, again speaking of God, he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God saves non-Jews just as he saves Jews, by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. We aren't saved by our works, and so we shouldn't uh, tell these new converts from the Gentiles that they have to do certain works in order to be saved. God has brought Jews and Gentiles together as one with no difference 
between us at all. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, when you first read verse 10, at least for me, it was quite confusing. The last half of the verse makes sense. Why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, a burden that none of us Jews have ever been able to bear? No one's ever kept the law of God perfectly. That's why we're all sinners. At some points, we all have violated God's commands. And so to say that you have to keep the law in order to be saved is placing an impossible burden on them. It's a standard none of us could ever reach. But what about the first part of that verse? How is this putting God to the test? And here I was especially helped by the word therefore in verse 10 combined with the NLT's translation of this verse. So first, the therefore. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Whenever you see a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. And so therefore means because of this. We don't really use the word therefore much in our normal uh, conversation, but if we did, this is how it would work. I would say something like, I'm really hungry, and I've been craving a cheeseburger all day. Therefore, I went to Culver's for lunch. So we might substitute the word so there. So because of these factors, therefore this. And so when you read verse 10, therefore, why are you testing God? So because of all that Peter had just said, uh, because of this, it is testing God to demand Gentiles should keep the law of Moses. So the word therefore, I think, is one piece of the puzzle that you need to get what verse 10 is saying. And by the way, not all English translations of the Bible have a therefore here. Uh, Some of them just take it right out. Uh, And if you have a a version of the Bible that doesn't have a therefore here or a so or a now then, something cluing you into the fact that uh, this is uh, connecting the previous passage, uh, you need to get a new Bible version because that is there in Greek. The word un means therefore or so that. And so give me a Bible with all the words. Uh, That's for free. ESV does a great job here with the word therefore. So I said, therefore is one piece of the puzzle. The other thing that I found helpful was the NLT's translation. Now, they didn't use the word therefore, uh, but they have a so, which communicates the same idea. Uh, So look at how they translate the verb, though. Verse 10, why are you now, so why are you now challenging God? I think that gets the sense that Peter is saying here most clearly. Therefore, Because uh, God was the one who chose to bring the Gentiles into the church, because God bore witness, confirmed their salvation by giving them the Holy Spirit, in light of all that, for you to be saying that Gentiles need to keep the law in order to be saved, you are challenging God. You're questioning his actions in bringing in the Gentiles just as they are. You're challenging his authority. I think that's what verse 10 means. Verse 11, Peter concludes, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So this is a pretty straightforward argument from Peter. He says, in effect, that God has made his will very clear on this matter. We need to accept the Gentiles as our equals in the kingdom of Christ because they have been saved through grace just like we are. Works don't save any of us. And if God has not placed this requirement of law-keeping or circumcision, he's saved them just as they are. Therefore, we ought to accept them just as they are. Verse 12 at this point tells us the entire assembly fell silent. Even those who were the loudest debaters a moment before, arguing that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved, 
After Peter's words, you could hear a pin drop in the room. Everyone was quiet. And then following right on the heels of Peter, Paul and Barnabas begin to speak. This is the next section of the text. Verse 12 tells us that they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, Luke doesn't give us the exact words uh, that Paul and Barnabas say here, probably for two reasons. First of all, it'd be a lot to write down in the book. Uh, Presumably, they spoke for a while. Secondly, Luke has already told us all of what took place during the missionary journeys, and so it would be needlessly repetitive to spell it all out again here. So instead, Luke just tells us that Barnabas and Paul explained what had taken place during their church planting trip uh, back in chapters 13 and 14 that we've already looked at. And in particular, Paul and Barnabas spoke of the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, the reason that they would bring this up, the reason it's relevant to this debate is this. Paul and Barnabas had started churches in Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. These are places where Gentiles had been saved along with Jews. In some places, it seems the entire church was founded primarily of Gentile converts because the Jews kicked them out of the synagogue. They rejected the gospel. And so Paul turns to the Gentiles and establishes a church with them. And during all of that, God was doing signs and wonders through Paul and Barnabas. Now, why would God do that if they were preaching a false gospel? If the conversions were not genuine and the the, the Gentiles uh, weren't really being saved because they weren't being circumcised, then why would God confirm the ministry of Paul and Barnabas with miracles and signs? So that's their argument. And it doesn't say this, but I suspect that at this point, the room got even more quiet. So far, both Peter and Paul have made very solid cases that God has received the Gentiles. He has confirmed clearly that they're a part of the church thus to add a requirement to these Gentile converts of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses in order to be saved, that would be to go against God's will, which he has made obvious. And this brings us to the third section where James speaks. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is another name for Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he goes on from there to speak to uh, quote Amos. We'll get there in a minute. So Peter, in his argument, uh, basically spoke on the basis of the visions that God had given him, uh, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, which he was an eyewitness to. Uh, Paul spoke based on his experience with Gentile conversions, the fact that God had uh, ministered signs and, and wonders, miracles through him as they're ministering to the Gentiles. James adds another layer of authority uh, beyond that, beyond just the miracles and the visions and the Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles. James appeals to Scripture, their Old Testament. And James quotes from the book of Amos, the prophet, a portion that confirms what Peter and Paul and Barnabas have been saying. And by the way, let me just say, uh, the Holy Spirit always agrees with Scripture. If somebody claims to have received a vision from God, if somebody claims that the Holy Spirit has communicated something to them, and it contradicts Scripture, uh, then you know that it is not from God. God never disagrees with himself. And so what God says in his word will always confirm and agree with what God does through his Spirit. So verse 16, James, quoting from the prophet Amos, says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, 
and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So God promised that a day would come when the rest of mankind outside of the Jewish people, all of the Gentiles who are called by his name, would turn to the Lord. God made clear back in Amos that this transition someday would take place, where Gentiles would be drawn to Christ. In verse 19, therefore, because of what Amos wrote and how it agrees with and confirms what Peter and Paul have been saying, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James says, what, what Peter and Paul and Barnabas have been telling us about Gentiles being saved and given the Holy Spirit, this is the fulfillment of Amos' prophecy. Now is the time that God told us about centuries ago that Gentiles would come into the kingdom of God and we should allow them to come. We shouldn't trouble them with things like circumcision or law-keeping when God has made very clear that he receives them just as they are. Now, I would have had a much easier time this week preparing this sermon if James had stopped right there with verse 19, because verse 20 uh, gets very confusing. So far, it's been simple, it's been straightforward, uh, clear and compelling arguments. Everyone is saying essentially the same thing. Uh, God has spoken. He receives the Gentiles. They don't need to become Jews. They don't need to observe the laws. Uh, and so we should accept them as they are as our brothers in Christ. But then, James adds... <clears throat> Verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, wait a minute, James. We've just established we're saved by faith, not by works of the law. And you just said that you agreed with all of that, that God has chosen to save Gentiles just as they are. And so they don't need to live like Jews. We shouldn't trouble them. We shouldn't place the burden of law-keeping on them. And then you turn right around and say, but let's, let's write a letter to the Gentile converts. Tell them, do this, do that, don't do this, don't eat that kind of meat. What is this? Uh, it seems like he's contradicting everything that he just said. And so let's see if we can get what James is saying here. Obviously, he's not saying we should do this but we shouldn't, okay? He's not saying two contradictory things in the same sentence. James is not a dummy. Uh, so then what is he saying? Well, first, let's, let's talk about the things that he lists here because they might sound a little bit weird to you. First of all, abstain from things polluted with idols. Idolatry was rampant in this society. Uh, there were temples to false gods <clears throat> all over the ancient Roman world, and there would be meat uh, that would be offered before the idol. And so you've got this idol made of wood or stone or whatever sitting there in an empty room somewhere. And a priest of that false god would bring in a nice juicy steak and set it before the idol for dinner. Now, of course, this is ridiculous. Uh, it's absurd uh, to think that something you made out of wood is alive and powerful and to worship it. That in and of itself is silly, but uh, it's really silly to give it dinner. Uh, but this is what people did. And so after they would set the steak down before the idol, they always had leftover steak because, you know, wooden objects typically aren't very hungry. Uh, and so they sold the meat. Uh, and so if you lived during this time, you could go to the, the, the idolatrous temple down the street and you could purchase these steaks that had been set before the idol. I don't know if it was steak, some sort of meat. Uh, and you could get a cheap dinner out of it, basically. And this sort of thing was considered an abomination to the Jews. They thought the meat was tainted because it had been involved in idol worship, and so if you bought it and you ate it, you were participating in idolatry. 
<clears throat> so the Jews had, had a real problem with this practice. They would never eat uh, the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, next thing that, that's, another thing is mentioned there, abstaining from eating animals that were strangled. Uh, this is one of the rules laid out in the Old Testament. Jews, if you read through Leviticus, you'll get a lot of these things. Jews were not allowed to eat meat uh, unless it had been prepared in special ways, having the blood drained out, things like that. Uh, the mention of sexual immorality is trickier. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so with all that said, I think verse 19 is saying one thing, and then verse 20 is talking about a different issue. Verse 19 is James's answer to the question, do Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved? Do they need to keep the law? Do they need to become Jews in order to be Christians? To that question, James says, it is my judgment we should not trouble them. Full stop. When they turn to God, we don't need to tell them, okay, but you need to do these certain things in order to be saved. No. Then, verse 20, I think James is no longer talking about salvation, but rather fellowship in the church. So to you Gentiles who have turned to Christ, we, we welcome you as you are. You don't need to become Jews. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by works, not by circumcision, anything like that. But you should abstain from meat offered to idols, not in order to be saved, but in order to maintain the unity of the church and not offend your Jewish brothers in the Lord. James goes on to say in verse 21, for or because, so here's the reason that he's telling them to abstain from these things. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. He says Jews for centuries have been reading the law of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament. They've been reading those in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And there are certain practices that were common among the Gentiles that really would be difficult for their Jewish brothers to see them doing. It would cause an offense because it violates their Old Testament laws. And because James wanted there to be fellowship among the brothers, both Jews and Gentiles, because the apostles, the elders, wanted unity in the church, these certain things are laid out. Gentiles, uh, we're not going to make you be circumcised. We're not expecting you to live as Jews. We're not even asking you to observe all of the laws of Moses. None of that is what saves you. Only Jesus' death saves you. But would you please do your fellow brothers in Christ a favor? Don't eat meat that was offered to idols. Don't, don't eat meat with blood mixed in. These are things that would be considered an abomination to your Jewish brothers. And so out of respect to them, we ask you to abstain from those things. Now, the reason I take that understanding of verse 19 and 20, as we'll see in a minute, is the whole assembly of the Jerusalem council agreed. They were all on the same page with James about this. That includes Paul. They all agree to this letter. Paul and Barnabas, in fact, take the letter to the Gentiles. So Paul is fully on board with what James says here. And later in Paul's letters, when he writes to the churches in Corinth and the churches in Rome, he addresses this issue of eating meat that was offered to idols. And he says this isn't an issue of salvation. Idols aren't real. Eating meat that was previously offered to idols doesn't really taint the meat. It's fine. It's, it's a steak. Go eat it. But for the sake of not offending your brother, Paul says, respect their conscience. If you have a Jewish friend from church over for dinner, don't serve those steaks that you got from the idol, uh, from, from the temple. Uh, don't give them the meat with the blood in it. You know that's going to make them uncomfortable because they've been taught their whole life that they're not supposed to eat this. So respect them enough to abstain from things that you may like for the sake of fellowship with your brothers in the Lord. 
And if that's what Paul says in his letters, and Paul agrees with James here in Acts 15, then it seems to me that that has to be what James is saying too. Not that abstaining from these things are are requirements to be saved, but rather we're asking you Gentiles to do this for the sake of fellowship with the Jews in the church. Now, of course, this leads to the obvious question, what about sexual immorality? Why is a moral sin listed right alongside the ceremonial distinctions of Judaism as if abstaining from sexual sin is just for the sake of fellowship? Uh, Well, the Greek word here is vague enough to refer to any number of things, Uh, The easiest solution is to understand this as a reference to certain unusual marriages, like to somewhat close relatives, things like that, that would have been forbidden in Leviticus. Uh, And so they would have been wrong for the Jewish people, but they were commonplace in that day. And so not necessarily referring to sexual sin like fornication or adultery, but uh, marriages that the Jews would find objectionable because of uh, Levitical prohibitions. Uh, That's the best I can do on that question. That is a tricky part. And so the letter ends up being uh, the resolution to this debate. And and here's what's truly shocking is everyone ends up on the same page. They all agreed. I mean, when does this ever happen that a group of people on opposite sides of an issue uh, come together, they're able to hammer it out and come to a unanimous decision? This meeting was a really incredible success. And we'll, we'll look at some reasons for that in a minute. But first, let's look at the conclusion of the text. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So what's in quotes here is the letter as written. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Notice, by the way, that he says, the brothers are writing this, and we're writing it to the brothers. You see an equality there. Uh, we, we see each other as one family of God. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. This is a reference to those Judaizers who were telling Gentiles they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. James says, basically, don't listen to them. We didn't tell them that. So, But because of their false teaching that's gone around, verse 25, it seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, verse 26 is referring uh, to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, In the Greek, it's the dative tense, which makes the reference clear there. Uh, Most of the time, whether you read a verse in an English translation or the original Greek text, uh, it's saying the exact same thing. This is one of those places where the Greek is clearer. Because uh, if you read them in English there, verse 25 and 26, it's unclear who is being said to have risked their lives. Is it Paul and Barnabas or the men that they're sending with them? Uh, but anyways, in Greek, it's Paul and Barnabas. I think this is included in the letter as a commendation of Paul and Barnabas. In other words, you can trust these guys. They're telling you the truth. They're trustworthy people. They're, they're the real deal. Uh, they risk their lives for the sake of spreading the gospel of Christ. Verse 27 We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So they'll confirm what Paul and Barnabas say and what's in this letter. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
I think it's also noteworthy there, the end of verse 29. He doesn't say, if you keep these things, keep yourselves from these, you'll be saved. <laughs> he says, if you keep, your, keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. So again, I don't think this is a salvation issue as much as uh, maintaining unity in the church. It's a request that they're giving to the Gentiles. It's interesting also in verse uh, 28 that the letter says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to send this to you. They were trying to come to the conclusion that the Spirit of God was directing them to. And Peter, Paul, and James, they had all made it clear in their arguments that God had effectively spoken on this issue already through Scripture, through the outpouring of the Spirit on Gentile converts, and through the signs and wonders that were confirming the ministry of Paul and Barnabas to non-Jews. And so this council was trying to agree with the Holy Spirit and to submit to whatever his will was on this matter. And they were convinced by the end of their debate that the resolution, this resolution they had come up with was from God, that the Spirit of God was guiding them through this meeting. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the whole congregation together, they delivered the letter. So somebody stands up, they read the letter to the, the church, uh, the Gentiles there in verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's really good, isn't it? They encouraged and strengthened them with many words. They preached long sermons. It's right there. I didn't put it in there. Verse 33. Uh, After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So Barnabas and Paul are back home in Antioch, Uh, which is sort of the home base for them. They remained there for some time, uh, preaching and teaching the word to the church there. A few thoughts as we close here. Five principles for conflict resolution in the church. What can we learn uh, from the way that the early church settled this doctrinal dispute uh, when it comes to our own disagreements, whatever they may be as church, as the church of Christ? Number one, uh, first principle, they had the debate. Okay, sometimes conflict isn't resolved because nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to bring up the disagreement and actually hammer it out. We just want to kind of ignore the problem, uh, sweep it under the rug, don't deal with it. That was not the attitude that the early church had. There was a disagreement, and so they met to discuss the issue. Verse 6 of Acts 15 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so they had the debate. Number two, Second principle we see for conflict resolution in the church is to listen to each other. Uh, The whole assembly, verse, verse 12, after Peter had spoken and made his case, it says, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. And as we see at the end, they actually come to uh, a unanimous conclusion, which tells me they were actually listening. Sometimes when we listen to someone in, in the midst of an argument, we're not really listening. We're not really listening with an open mind, uh, open to correction. No, we're waiting for the person to stop speaking so that we can make our point. That's how we typically argue. Uh, This is not what was taking place in the early church. They actually listened and considered what each other was saying. Number three, third principle for resolution of conflict is to search the scriptures. They weren't content to just talk about experiences, although that was important, Uh, There were manifestations of the Holy Spirit taking place at this time, which uh, couldn't be ignored, but that wasn't enough. They still 
went to their Old Testament scriptures to see what God had written on this matter. Verse 14 of Acts 15, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So he goes on from there to quote that section from Amos. Scripture was their authoritative standard of truth. Whatever the Bible says is what we're going to do. The scriptures they had indicated that Gentiles would one day be included in the kingdom of Christ. And so when it comes to doctrinal disagreements, we should always get the conversation to what does scripture teach? What does the Bible say about this? Number four. Fourth principle for conflict resolution is to be humble enough to admit your error and possibly change your position. Those who were in the wrong, and there were some who were in the wrong here. This debate was taking place. They were humble enough to where at the end of the meeting, after hearing the arguments and hearing the scripture that was read, they changed their position and said, you know what, you guys are right. We were wrong on this. Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church. So there's total agreement here. Again, in verse 25, when they send this letter, here's just one section of the letter. It seemed good to us having come to one accord, unanimous. This shows real humility on the part of those who changed their position on this controversy. You'll never come to a resolution on anything if both parties involved in the debate are so prideful that even if they know they're wrong, they won't admit it. Uh, Often when you're arguing with someone, there comes that moment in time, I've talked about this before, where you start to realize, I might be wrong about this. I'm making these arguments for my position and the other person's making different arguments and I'm sounding less and less persuasive as I'm talking. And the choice in that moment is either to humbly admit, yeah, you might be right about this, or to double down on what you now realize is wrong simply out of pride. This group had the humility to listen and to learn from one another. Number five, fifth principle for conflict resolution in the church, they were spirit-filled and submissive to the Lord. Uh, Peter, Paul, James, they all made their arguments that God had made his will clear on this matter. And so we need to submit to it. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. These were spirit-filled men, submissive to the will of God on the matter. They wanted to do God's will. Even if that made them uncomfortable or just didn't feel right to them, having been, had, had this attitude of Jewish superiority for centuries, they were willing to let go of that because they were submissive to the Lord. We are his servants. He is our Lord. And so the debate was settled. Gentiles were welcome into the church just like Jews. And so the kingdom of Christ is expanding to include people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And with this issue resolved, with the unity of the church restored, The gospel is ready to advance further. Uh, And the end of verse 35 ends off with these words. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So Paul and Barnabas are back home in Antioch, ministering to the church there for a time. And we'll see next week that Paul ends up heading out uh, from Antioch on the next missionary journey, the next uh, trip, planting churches in new places. We'll see that next time. Let's pray.